0: Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message.
1: Turn with me to the first Epistle of John. First John, and we shall continue in our series of messages from this particular book. This will be the third in the series, there are some more to come. I'm going to read this morning, beginning in the first chapter at verse 8, and read through the second verse of the second chapter. If we say that My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let us pray. Our Father, we... your children, confess our love for you and desire that the words of this scripture, the message and the hymns and the special music, every portion of this service would be used to glorify your name, and Lord, from it, that we should receive a blessing. Lift up our hearts, closer to you this morning than perhaps we've ever been before, and deal with each of us as the needs are present, forgive us our sins as we endeavor to search our hearts and separate from us all those things that are contrary to your will. May we be as pure as it's possible for us to be, but we know that we are. Acceptable in your sight through our redemption, through the forgiveness of our sin, through Jesus Christ who made it all possible. Amen. We pray. Last Sunday morning, we dealt with the statements found in the fifth, sixth, and seventh verses of the first chapter. Which primarily we find John telling us that God is light, meaning that there is not any shadow cast from him in any manner, that to be in his presence is to stand in the pure light that comes from him, therefore, there is a total revelation of our lives as we stand in his light. John asked us to walk in the light in such a manner that we would be able to have fellowship one with another. Then he advised us that as we walked in this light that it would be the blood of Jesus Christ that would cleanse us from our sins. He then immediately states in verse 8, where we are this morning, that if we say that we do not have any sin, two things are about to happen. One is we are being self-deceitful. And secondly, God's truth certainly would not be evident in us. Now I'm sure none of us in this congregation, and this is tongue-in-cheek, have ever said uh, I don't have any sin but I have known people who have made such a statement I recall dealing with a lady on one occasion in a conference in which I suggested that she ought perhaps and would like to bow in prayer and ask God to forgive her of her sins and I made a few other statements but She replied to me, I don't know, as I've done anything so bad, I need to ask forgiveness for. And although we would say horrors, anybody who is a follower of Christ and has studied the scripture would know that there is no possibility of making such a statement, for we all have sinned, as we are well taught in the scriptures and have repeated many times, Romans 3.23, and have fallen short of the glory of God. As strange as it might seem, we sometimes have the tendency to portray ourselves in the mode of being sinless. And surely nobody would ever be able to look at us and say that we have done something wrong, that we have sinned, we don't oftentimes admit our sin to each other or to God. There is an assumption on the part of some that since they have become a Christian that all sin and the possibilities of it have left them. But surely we would recognize that we still are living in the physical, in the body, and consequently we continue to sin. And I think more times than we would like to think, that as we sit in the congregation Sunday after Sunday or stand in the pulpit, that there is a need for us to confess that we have indeed sinned. As I have said on more than one occasion, it will be a shame if this nice front that we have prepared, nice finish to the board, remains so nice, because it ought to be used, perhaps, for occasion when we need to, in the presence of ourselves, and certainly in the presence of God, confess our sin and spend time in prayer admitting that to our Lord, perhaps it ought to be done right here in his house. Besides those who would state that they perhaps do not sin and therefore do not have any need to seek forgiveness, are that group of people who would say, well, I probably have sinned, but in my case, there was a reason it was justifiable. And I think we red-faced many times would admit that we have sinned and have excused ourselves with saying, but my situation was different. Now, anybody else doing that ought to be ashamed and ought to seek repentance, but you see, in my case it was different. But John says if we say that we have not sinned, and that's really what we're saying when we try to justify what we've done, and say, well, in my case, it was not sin. John says we have done two things. Number one, we have deceived ourselves, and secondly, the truth is not in us. To deceive oneself in saying that he has not sinned is to make a statement that could be considered to considering oneself above the average individual and closely approaching the Lord Jesus himself in purity. We deceive ourselves in thinking that we have somehow arisen, have risen, brethren, to a, a higher plane of living than most others with whom we sit, that we are pretty close to being neath the cross. Or perhaps we are deceiving ourselves into thinking that uh, our life is good enough that by our works we shall be accepted into heaven. Although I'm sure that none of us would make that statement I wonder sometimes if many of us still do not live in that realm of believing that it is by our good works that we are saved, rather than by our faith and confession of Jesus Christ. We hear it and see it each day. The second statement that he makes is... We not only deceive ourselves into thinking that we are something that we are not, but secondly, we do not find the truth in us. Over in the sixth verse, he makes the statement, if we say that we have fellowship with God, that's the word him there, and walk in darkness, We lie. And again, he says, if we say in verse 8 that we have no sin, I think we could well interpret we lie. But down in verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, that is, God a liar. The word is not in us. One of two people is lying. If we say that we have not sinned, I have lied or God has lied. There doesn't seem to be any middle ground. What it amounts to is, if we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar. Therefore, the truth that comes from God could not possibly be in us. Well, that's pretty tough stuff. That no doubt embarrasses us in our daily life. If by what we say or by what we do, we give the impression that we feel that we have not sinned, and like the lady that I quoted, feel that we have not done anything for which we ought to seek forgiveness, therefore this attitude depicts us as being a person who would call God a liar. Now, look at verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Of course, it begins with the word if, making an assumption that we are going to do, in fact, that very thing, confess our sins. You remember that James said, to confess your faults one to another. I do not believe that James was talking about hanging out all of our dirty laundry so that everybody could see it. Because there are those things in our private lives that need to remain private and only be talked about to God. But I certainly think that James is definitely telling us that when we have wronged one another and sinned against each other, that we must confess that fault to those people whom we have wronged. This is a tough one for us to do because it is embarrassing to confess that one has done wrong. You remember the story of the prodigal son, how the prodigal wanted all of his goods that was due him. and He wanted to leave home and go into a foreign country, and there he spent everything that he had gained from his father and wasted it, and finally came to the point of having to rethink his action and decided that the only thing he possibly could do now was to go back home and admit confess to his father that he'd done wrong. That he wasted all that he had gained from his father. And when he went back, he started his confession. 15th chapter of Luke. And he said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. Two things he stated. He had certainly done his father wrong, and as a consequence, he had sinned before him, before God. You see, it is a sin to do another wrong. So there is the double obligation or responsibility of straightening things out with the person that we have wronged, as well as confessing this same thing before God. The publican, as he stood on the street corner with the Pharisee and was observed by others, prayed an entirely different prayer than the Pharisee who stood and said, God, I thank you that I'm not as other men are, and he listed all the things that other men were. Or even as this publican very haughty, very proud, very unconfessing of anything, feeling that, that he was superior to these lowly people, particularly the publican. And the publican simply said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. was the sinner who went home justified and not the haughty, proud church member, if we might put it in modern-day terms. I remember the story uh, several years ago when a pastor in a church in England was approached by his ladies group, who had asked him to please stop a half-Chinese, I believe she was, and a half-English girl from attending their groups because they were embarrassed by her presence. And they said to the pastor, if you don't stop her from coming to our groups, we're going to quit meeting. And so the pastor went to the girl and told her that she would have to stop going. And the girl responded, sir, I know I'm a sinner. Isn't there some place a sinner can go? This is the place for sinners to congregate, those who are saved by the grace of God and confess that we are sinners and beg God's forgiveness. This is also a place that sinners who are not yet saved can congregate, that we perhaps might uh, do something through the power of the Holy Spirit that would turn their lives around. But nevertheless, this is a congregation of sinners. place where sinners ought to go there to find what John tells us can be found and that is forgiveness and the latter portion of verse 9 he says if we confess our sins then that's our obligation but then God comes into the picture and he does something he does two things I want you to notice First of all, he's faithful and he's just to do it. And what does he do? He forgives us our sins and does what? And cleanses us from all unrighteousness. God is faithful to his word. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, For he is faithful that promised. No wavering. Certainly John made that clear when he told us that God is light and there is no shadow made whatever by his turning. This is the person that John invites us to appear before and confess our sins, he will be faithful in forgiving us our sins, for he has promised that he will. Jeremiah 31, 34, the old prophet said, according God, I will forgive their iniquities and will remember them no more. Forgiveness is a part of the nature of God. It is his nature to forgive. Forgive us our sins and what? He is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Two things he states there forgiveness and cleansing. Back in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18, a verse that you perhaps know by memory. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. There's one thing about God that we know for assurance. And that is, if we ask, in his name, he gives. We can all have our sins washed away, of course, in the blood of Jesus Christ. All right, let's go quickly to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. The first thing he says in chapter 2, speaking to the believers that he calls little children, he says, these things I write unto you, that ye sin not. He says, I write to you telling you not to sin. Now, we know that we are of a sinful nature, and most of us probably have a tendency not to try very hard at that command, but to excuse ourselves by saying, well, after all, I'm only human. Meaning, the Lord will understand, but John does not give us that option of being so weak in our efforts that we do not try, but he commands us to not sin. But he immediately attaches to it an important statement when he says, and if any man sin." It follows in our thinking that every person is going to sin. We cannot escape the possibility, try as hard as we might. Though most of us do not try that hard. Try as hard as we might. We will falter. We will fail. We will sin. We will do wrong. And if any man does... All is not lost. Our soul is not condemned to hell because we have sinned. And he says two important things. Number one, we have an advocate with the Father. An advocate. One who intercedes for us one who pleads for us, one who takes our case, one who is our lawyer and speaks on our behalf. I've heard it said, and I'm sure you have too, anyone who has himself for a client has a fool for a client. Even lawyers hire lawyers. Anyone who thinks that he can adequately represent himself before God in the seeking of the forgiveness of his sin as a fool for a client. It is Jesus Christ who is our advocate, who pleads our case before God above. And secondly, in the second verse, he says, and he also, referring to Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation is not a common, ordinary word. I doubt that you've used that yet today. Or you probably won't even use it tomorrow. We don't use that word in modern day language. It means one who takes the wrath. He is the one who takes the wrath. He's one who takes the beating. He is one who gave his life because the scripture says the wages of sin is death. The penalty for sinning is to die. God made that clear all the way through the scriptures. You sin, to die. Except there is one who is willing to stand forth and take the wrath of God, his wrath against our sin, and pay the penalty for us. There was a prison episode in which a father and son were both imprisoned in the same cell. The son was condemned to die, to be executed. They happened to have the same name. So, when the guard came and called out the name, either one could have stood up and gone. It was the father who stood and went to the gallows instead of his son. He is the one who took the wrath. It is Jesus Christ who was willing to take the wrath of God against all sin of the world and die on that cross and by the shedding of his blood and the, blood and the breaking of his body, pay the penalty, pay the price, because we have sinned. Jesus is the anecdote for the poison of sin. He is the one who neutralizes all of the wrath of God. He is the sin killer. And in his place, he gives life. All because God loved you and me enough to give us an option so that our sins could be forgiven, washed away, cleansed, we be purified and could stand before God uncondemned for our own sin. Let's pray.